0: Grab a Bible and go ahead and turn with me to Hebrews chapter 7, and we're going to be in verses 11 through 19 today. So Hebrews 7, 11 through 19, that's our passage. And uh, just to kind of give you some context for where we are, especially if you haven't been tracking with us the last couple of weeks, uh, last week we looked at uh, maybe the Bible's most mysterious character, uh, this, this mysterious Melchizedek, that's what we talked about last week, And specifically, we focused on how Melchizedek, uh, going all the way back to Genesis chapter 14, how he prefigured the coming Christ, the coming Messiah. He was, uh, as you'll remember if you were here last week, he was a royal priest associated with peace and righteousness who was based out of Jerusalem, none other than. uh, And he was the, the mediator of God's blessings according to God's promises to Abraham. So here we see prefigured already in Melchizedek in Genesis chapter 14, this coming one who would be the seed of the woman, who would be the seed of Abraham, who would be a royal priest based out of Jerusalem, who would be the great mediator of God's blessings to God's people and who would usher in peace and righteousness. And we looked at this also last week, whose priesthood would seemingly be unending. Because again, it doesn't talk about the death of Melchizedek in that passage. And uh, the author of Hebrews uses that to launch into uh, the fact that the the true Messiah, the the one who is coming, who's prefigured by Melchizedek, would be associated with an everlasting priesthood. So we looked at all that last week. Uh, This week, we get to drill down on some of these topics. Chapter 7 in the book of Hebrews is really tightly interconnected. So it's kind of hard. It's like you, you don't want to do a sermon covering all of it because you don't really get to get into the, the uh, specifics much. But then when you do a sermon on just 11 through 19, you've got to realize that this is uh, inextricably linked and, and connected in with what came before and what comes after. Uh, I do want to point this out. <laughs> when we talk about ancient priesthoods, I get that that doesn't feel very relevant to life today. Okay, when we talk about Melchizedek and his ancient royal priesthood uh, 4,000 years ago, right? it's, it's kind of hard for us to think, wow, that readily applies to my everyday life today. Going to work, driving the kids off at school, or, or whatever you do day in and day out. But I, I want to promise you this, that as, as we talk about these ancient priesthoods, but, but ultimately as we talk about how they point forward to The priesthood of Jesus Christ, there could be nothing more relevant to our lives and to our salvation than the priesthood of our our great high priest, Jesus Christ. Because it's not an ancient priesthood, it's a priesthood that's happening right now and forevermore on our behalf. We're going to talk about that today. Uh, You've probably heard the phrase, well, I'm just going to assume every adult in the room has heard the phrase, nobody's perfect. We say that all the time. Uh, However, that, that's true, but with one really important exception that the Bible teaches us about. Jesus alone is perfect, absolutely flawless, perfect in a way that we can't even imagine because he alone is both fully man and fully God. He's the God man. He is perfect in every way imaginable. But the realization of this fact that Jesus alone is perfect, it doesn't, it doesn't stop us from seeking perfection elsewhere, from going to other sources to find perfection. However, our definition, our concept of perfection is really just superlative statements. What I mean is we're really just comparing the good to the better to the best from our perspective. When we talk about eating the perfect hamburger, I'm sure there'll be some debate on where that is in Austin. When we say we're looking for the perfect spouse or house or puppy, the perfect wave. We just watched a surfing movie the other day. Talk about the perfect wave, the perfect sunset. Around here at Wayside, the perfect happy birthday gift to send out to everyone. Uh, A lot of those, and they're definitely not the perfect, by the way. Uh, if you're on any of those text streams. But it's, it's all right for us to speak about perfection in this way as long as we realize that the perfection of Christ is something else entirely. That, that the perfection of Christ in that He is perfect is in a completely different category from all the other things we talk about as being perfect in that superlative sense. And this, this also helps us understand why the good news of Jesus Christ is such good news for us. We can't be perfect. And every single person knows that deep down in their soul. We all understand that we are imperfect. But he was perfect for us. Guys, that's that's the good news of the gospel. That that we know we're not perfect, like God is perfect, but we can know that Jesus is perfect and will always be perfect. And that he has invited us to claim his absolute perfection as our own. He says, my perfection can be yours, not through self-effort, not through trying really hard to, to overcome those imperfections and perfect yourself. He's saying, I give it to you as grace. The opposite of the gospel of God's grace, and hear me on this, is self-righteousness or or what we might call works righteousness. Maybe you've heard those phrases before. It's the illusion that we can somehow attain perfection on our own through our own self-efforts. We can perfect ourselves, in other words. But folks, we have to let go of that illusion of self-perfection since perfection is only possible through Christ. He is our great hope. Today's passage is a stark reminder of this simple fact. It reveals the, the, uh, the inadequacy of the Levitical priesthood, this priesthood of Israel that descended from the tribe of Levi. Today's passage is going to reveal the inadequacy of that former priesthood to make anybody perfect. And it's going to reveal the absolute supremacy of Christ and the perfection of his priestly service on our behalf. That's what we get to look at today in this passage. All right. Without Jesus, there is no hope of perfection. Again, I don't care how hard you try, how hard I try. Without Jesus, there is no hope of perfection. Before Christ, there was only the Levitical priesthood. And again, Levitical is just referring to the priesthood that descends from the tribe of Levi. It was the male descendants of Aaron, Moses' older brother. We read about in Exodus and onwards. But it was these male descendants of Aaron from the tribe of Levi who alone were given the, the priestly office. They, they alone could function as priests in the tabernacle, that tent of God's presence amongst his people. And later on, the, the actual building, the temple in Jerusalem. But this priesthood, this Levitical priesthood, was neither perfect nor permanent, and we have to understand that. First of all, that former priesthood was never perfect, and I just, I I encourage you, go back and read the origins of it, right? We get hints of the imperfection of the Levitical priesthood going as far back as Exodus chapter 32, And, and think about this, it's the story of Aaron receiving the priesthood from God, and And Aaron is leading God's people to melt down their gold and make a golden calf to worship. That's what Aaron is doing while God is explaining his priestly office and the role he's going to play as a priest and the role his descendants are going to play as priests within the people of Israel. While God is explaining this to Moses on the mountain and originating the Levitical priesthood, the first high priest Aaron is down making a golden calf. That gives us hints that this was never meant or intended to be perfect, this priesthood. But look at verse 11 in our passage with me, and I'm going I'm to read it. And I'll read the whole passage as we go along. So grab your Bible and read along with me. So starting in Hebrews chapter 7, verse 11, it says, Now, if perfection was through the Levitical priesthood, for on the basis of it the people received the law, he's talking about the law of Moses, What further need was there for another priest to arise according to the order of Melchizedek and not be designated according to the order of Aaron? He poses this sort of question. So, this verse is going to continue the comparison between the priesthoods of Melchizedek on the one hand and the priesthood arising out of the tribe of Levi that we looked at last week. Remember, last week there was this great really a contrast between these two priesthoods of uh, the Melchizedekian priesthood coming associated with Melchizedek. And again, if you're like, Melchizedek, this is weird. Go back and listen to that sermon from last week, or at least go read the first part of chapter 7. It'll, it'll help you out in that department. But, but here the, the author is making the point that if perfection could be obtained or attained through the Levitical priesthood, which by the way, the author knows it wasn't, Okay? He's not stating this like, wow, if it was. He's like, no, it wasn't. But he's saying that if perfection could have been attained through the Levitical priesthood, then why would God replace it with a very different priesthood? If it was sufficient to make us perfect, to perfect the worshipers of God, then why would it have been replaced, is his point. And I, I need to explain this term perfection, because again, we think in sort of our terms of what perfection means, but we don't want to put that on the biblical term here that's being used. So in this context, folks, perfection, it means bringing something to completion in terms of of what it was designed to be. Bringing something to completion in terms of what it was designed or created to be. It's, uh, It's the idea of reaching its goal, something fulfilling its ultimate function. That's what we're talking about when we say perfection here. And some scholars of the Bible have pointed out that in the context of our passage, which is worship of the one true God, perfection can also include this idea of a priest being ordained or consecrated for priestly service. We saw this all the way back in chapter 2 when Jesus was perfected through his sufferings. Remember that? And and the, the proving of his obedience to God? He was perfected. He was brought to completion and in his priestliness. That was his consecration. That's when he was ordained. That's when God said, you are a priest, is when he presented himself in heaven, in the heavenly tabernacle before God. That's what we're talking about with perfection here, and it can involve this idea of being consecrated, being set apart. The former priesthood, that is the Levitical priesthood, with its sacrifices and offerings time and time again, over and over again, could never truly perfect worshipers. It couldn't even perfect the priests that were doing all these rituals. It had no power to do that. For for perfection, worshipers, including the priests themselves, they would need a different kind of priest with an altogether different type of priesthood. The former priesthood was also never permanent. We we have to grab hold of this, okay? Look at verses 12 through 14 with me. It says, For when the priesthood is changed of necessity, there takes place a change of law also for the one concerning whom these things are spoken belongs. He's talking about Jesus here belongs to another tribe from which no one has officiated at the altar. For it is evident that our Lord was descended from the tribe of Judah, a tribe with reference to which Moses spoke nothing concerning priests. So in verse 12 that I just read we see that the Levitical priesthood was inseparably linked with the law of Moses. The Levitical priesthood was, was, was you, you couldn't separate it out from law, the law of Moses, okay? So that's what verse 12 is telling us. So if the priesthood changes, then it necessitates a change in the law. You, you, you can't, it's like putting a square peg in a round hole. You've got to change the law if you're going to change the priesthood is what his point is. Otherwise, if the law of Moses would, was still in effect with regard to the priestly requirements that we see in Leviticus and elsewhere, then, then having a priest from a different tribe would be against the law. And again, that seems like kind of an obvious thing, but it's important for him to point out to these Jewish background believers in the first century. It's important for us to understand as well. You see, in the books of Moses, which are the first five books in the Bible, Genesis through Deuteronomy, there's, there's no mention whatsoever of priests coming from the tribe of Judah. Now, there's mention of kings. That's where the kings were going to come from at the end of Genesis, was the tribe of Judah. But no mention whatsoever about priests in the tribe of Judah. He's making this point. But if the Exodus happened in the 15th century B.C., then 500 years later, in the reign of King David... God speaks through the prophetic ministry of King David with his psalms. And in Psalm 110, he says this through King David, through David. He says he announces that the coming Messiah would be both a king in the line of David. That's the great Davidic covenant. That's the great promise of God to David, that it's through your seed, through your family, that Messiah, the anointed one will come. But Psalm 110, which is the focus of this entire chapter in Hebrews, also says that Messiah will be a priest from David's tribe, the tribe of Judah. This is is fascinating stuff, believe it or not, these ancient priesthoods, because these are the only two mentions of Melchizedek in the entire Old Testament, is Genesis 14 where we hear about him for the first time, and then David Saying that there was going to be the Messiah was going to come in the likeness according to the order of Melchizedek. And this announcement, here's what it did it made it absolutely clear to God's people that the Levitical priesthood was only meant to be temporary. As Israel awaited her Messiah, her great Savior, who wouldn't come, by the way, for another thousand years, but that priesthood was always meant to be temporary. Remember how how the Sadducees that were interacting with Jesus, how they just grabbed hold of the priesthood and all the priestly service of the Levitical priesthood, they wouldn't let go of it. Why? Because it was their power structure. It was their means of self-righteousness. They, they missed what David was saying in Psalm 110. That Guys, this is, this is not permanent. This is temporary as we await the one who's going to fulfill all these wonderful things that Jesus fulfilled. But they weren't willing to give it up. Uh, in, in the meantime, as they awaited that former priesthood would be neither perfect nor permanent, uh, in a couple of weeks we're going to go visit uh, Gramsci and Granddaddy and Nanny, who are on Zoom right now. We're going to go visit them in Starkville, Mississippi, Stark Vegas, as they like to call it locally. Uh, and, and her family has this piece of land there. It's like maybe 40 acres, uh, it's just real pretty Mississippi woods. And uh, we're going to go hang out there. They affectionately refer to it as the farm. And uh, it hasn't produced any crops in a long time. It, its crops are giant trees now, uh, where it might have grown crops at one point. But, but we call it the farm. And uh, we've been doing some work out there. Last time we were out there, I guess it was now a couple months ago, we, uh, the kids and I walked down to inspect this bridge that's on the property. It's the only bridge on the property. And there's a pretty deep creek that runs right through the middle of the property. So there's these like railroad ties that go across the creek. And then there's these uh, creosote, back when you could get those things, uh, uh, like railroad ties that would go across, uh, and, and it made a bridge. And, and it was a great bridge at one point. In fact, funny story, uh, I actually have a lot of sweat equity in this, because the very first time I went to meet Stacy's family, they determined that that was the day they were going to rebuild and restore this massive bridge on their property. So uh, I was a good sport, and I went along with them, and I helped... Uh, do some well let's just put it this way I have some sweat equity in that bridge okay so you can imagine how kind of defeating how kind of sad it was when we went there a couple months ago and it was completely dilapidated in fact I I walked up to it and it's probably like 20 feet drop or something I walked up to it my kids with me they go daddy we love having you as our daddy please don't move any closer to the bridge And, uh, I mean, there's like railroad ties broken and falling all over the place. I mean, you can't walk across that thing on foot, much less on a four-wheeler, which is how we like to travel there. Um, But that bridge, the point here is that it's not perfect. That bridge is imperfect. We will never be able to perfect it regardless of how hard we try. Regardless of how much sweat and, and blood and tears we put into it, we can never make that bridge perfect. It will never stand the test of time. It will inevitably fall apart. We would be foolish to expect perfection from an old wooden bridge. Right? The Levitical priesthood is like that old wooden bridge at the farm. It it can never be perfect. It isn't perfect. It could never be made perfect. It was useful for a time. And if you think about what is a bridge for, it's to get you from one side to the other. The Levitical priesthood was useful for a time in that it provided a means, a very limited means, a very conditional means of approaching the holy presence of God through the sacrificial system and the priesthood and the temple tabernacle structure. There was a way to approach God in our sin as human beings, in our imperfection. He made a way that he could dwell amongst his people and that we could approach him in his holiness. But again, in a very limited sense and in a very temporary sense. No amount of work could perfect the imperfect priesthood of Israel, that it, that it wasn't lasting. The nation and the world would need a new sort of priesthood. That former priesthood was neither perfect nor permanent. Folks, without Jesus, I want to reiterate this, there is no hope of perfection. Before the destruction of the temple uh, some Christians had a vision in the 60s A.D., and they all, most of them, the Christians, left Jerusalem to go to a place called Petra or Petra. Um, and so when the rebellion happened amongst the Jews in Jerusalem, and the three legions of Roman soldiers came under the leadership of Titus, who would go on to become emperor, they absolutely destroyed Jerusalem. They destroyed the Temple Mount. They tore apart the temple, and these guys were amazing engineers. They would heat up the giant massive blocks at the temple uh, structure. They would heat them up and then cool them down and heat them up and cool them down and crack them and then haul off the pieces. I mean, they devastated the temple, and the temple was the house of worship. That was the base for the Levitical priesthood, not to mention it was where they stored all the genealogical records where you could go to prove that you were from the tribe of of Levi and, and from the family of Aaron. After that destruction, there was no Levitical priesthood. There was no temple after that destruction. All right. But some of the rabbis, some of the rabbinical tradition up to that point, started thinking of the Levitical priesthood as as perfect. And therefore, it would be everlasting. You see what they missed in Psalm 110? They missed the fact that this was just a temporary thing. God never intended it to be perfect or everlasting. But they missed that. They, they missed the significance of what David said there, uh, that God already had plans in 1000 BC. God already announced his plans to replace that old priesthood with a new and different kind of priesthood through his Messiah, his anointed one, who would be both king and priest. The ancient rabbis, they were were looking for perfection in that former priesthood instead of anticipating, of looking forward to the perfection of Jesus the Messiah, Jesus the Christ. They should have been waiting for him instead of doubling down on this temporary imperfect thing. And of course, we see that played out in the actual ministry of Jesus, where he's rejected by the religious leaders during his ministry. Uh, and frankly, and I'll just be the first to admit this, we are tempted to do that exact same thing today, even in our relationship with God. What do I mean by that? We may, we may not look, in fact, I don't think anyone in here is looking towards the Levitical priesthood the way that the ancient rabbis looked at the Levitical priesthood, but we often look to other things to make ourselves perfect, to perfect ourselves, or to at least appear that way to others, or even to ourselves Maybe. As I mentioned earlier, we're all tempted towards self-righteousness or works righteousness. Basically, we try to appear as though we are perfect. What else is self-righteousness other than just trying to appear to others as though you're perfect, you're righteous? That's what it is, right? Um, often this is accompanied with the, the works, right? So here's, here's why works righteousness is so tempting, because we can do a lot of stuff even in the church, we can do a lot of stuff for Jesus. And then we have something to point to for our self-righteousness. The works we can point to and say, look, I am perfect. And we would never say that verbally out loud, but in our hearts, that's sort of how we're posturing to other people, even in the church. I do that too. We're sort of pointing to all those things we do for Jesus. And we're like, see, look, we're perfect. But again, it's that that category of perfection that we're operating under is so infinitely below the category of perfection that Jesus offers. But we use that to bolster our claims of righteousness. And this is where the, the great prophet Isaiah would remind us. I love this. Isaiah tells us in Isaiah 64, 6, I think we have it on a slide. He says, all our righteous deeds are like filthy rags before the holiness of God. I mean, doesn't that just gut punch you if you're on this trajectory of self-righteousness? It's like, what? All of my righteous deeds are like filthy rags compared to God's holiness? Yes. And you know what? That's kind of a a heartbreaking thing for us if we've been seeking to perfect ourselves through self-righteousness or some other means. But then listen to what Isaiah says. He gives us the great hope, and he's writing like 700 plus years before Jesus He gives us this great hope of being perfected by God himself. So on the one hand, everything you do in and of yourself is like filthy rags. But then listen to what he says in Isaiah 61, verse 10. He says, speaking of God, the Lord, he says, He has clothed me with garments of salvation and arrayed me in a robe of his righteousness. Folks, to be clothed in perfection This is what he's talking about here. To be clothed in salvation and righteousness is only possible through the work of one particular priest, and he did not descend from the tribe of Levi. So now let's turn to this great hope that we have in Christ in the last part of our passage. With Jesus, there is actually hope of perfection. Perfection. This is because his priesthood is both perfect and permanent. And we're supposed to see this contrast in the midst of chapter 7, all right? So first of all, Jesus' priesthood is permanent. Look at verses 15, 16, and 17. It says, And this is clearer still, if another priest arises according to the likeness of Melchizedek, who has become such, not on the basis of a law, of physical requirement. He's talking about the physical requirement for the, the Levitical priesthood. He says, but according to the power of an indestructible life, for it is attested of him, and he's talking about Messiah here, Jesus, you are a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. So the author of Hebrews is going to hone in on this language of forever. The temporary nature of the Levitical priesthood is, is what he's saying is that's all the more apparent when you consider that another priest has risen. And that word for arise or risen has these beautiful, we can't get into them today, but these beautiful messianic overtones, messianic connections in the Hebrew Bible. He's like the star that rises out of Jacob. There's the, the branch who rises out of the family of Jesse. There's really cool stuff there. Again, that's a, another sermon for another day. But the point is, the Messiah would come as a priest king in the likeness of Melchizedek. He switches, by the way. Did you notice that? It was the, according to the order of Melchizedek. And now he overtly says, according to the likeness of Melchizedek, what he's trying to cue us into as the readers is that Melchizedek was just a type. He, 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 he was a foreshadowing of the one who would come to be the great high priest, the Messiah. And we discussed this last week, but that short story of Melchizedek in Genesis 14, it's like four verses long. It has no mention of Melchizedek's genealogy, who his mom and dad were, what tribe he descended from, or anything like that. And it had no mention of his death. It just sort of, he showed up and he went away. And there's no mention of, of him passing on his priesthood to someone else or anything like that. And similarly, and again, he's a prefiguring for the coming Messiah. Messiah would not be a priest according to the genealogical requirements of the law of Moses, like the Levitical priesthood. Instead, he was qualified to serve as a priest because, get this, he alone would be able to serve forever indefinitely. That's what qualified him to be the kind of priest that God was wanting to provide us with. He was qualified because he could serve as our priest forever, being the eternal son of God who became man, who suffered and died for our sins who was resurrected from the grave, who ascended into heaven, and when He stood before the Father, prior to sitting down at the right hand of the Father, it was proclaimed of Him, You are a priest forever. The words of Psalm 110 are the words of God as Father, of God the Father, rather, as His Son, the Messiah, the God-Man, Jesus Christ, entered into His presence in the heavenly Holy of Holies on account of His perfect sacrifice for sin, through His crucifixion and death, and the Father says that to His Son, He says, You are a priest forever. The effectiveness of His priestly service on our behalf, mind you, this wasn't some arbitrary thing He was doing. He was doing this priestly service on your behalf and on my behalf. His effectiveness will never be interrupted by death. Like it was for every single Levitical priest who ever lived and served in that office, whose priestly service was interrupted by death. And, oh, by the way, sin, which made them unholy and and unfit to serve. None of those things can interrupt the priestly service of our great high priest, Jesus Christ. Jesus' priesthood is also perfect. Look at verse 18 and 19, our last two verses. It says, for on the one hand... There is a setting aside of a former commandment because of its weakness and uselessness. And then he has this little parenthetical thing. He says, for the law made nothing perfect. Just in case you're wondering, for the law made nothing perfect. And on the other hand, so there's a setting aside of a former weak, useless commandment. And on the other hand, there's a bringing in of, I love this, of a better hope. And then look at this. It's so relational. Let's let's get out of the intellectual sort of conceptual and let's let's bring it down to the relational. He says there is a bringing in of a better hope through which we draw near to God. The word for setting aside of a former commandment here is much stronger than that word back in verse 12 for the change in the law. The the author is emphasizing that the law of Moses, along with its associated Levitical priesthood, could never truly solve the problem of sin. And he's going to talk about it later in, in terms of the blood of bulls and goats could never purify us from sin. It was never meant to. It was therefore ultimately ineffective. And that's not that the law was a bad thing, people. It's not like God was like, oh, I don't have the Messiah ready. I gotta cram something into this time frame to kind of to kind of band-aid over the problem I have with sinful man. No. It was always anticipated. God was always going to provide this temporary Levitical priesthood because it points toward the priesthood of Jesus Christ. It was supposed to be a precursor foreshadowing and pointing us in our expectations toward the Messiah so that we, when we saw him, when we met him, we would receive him as such. So it's not that the law is bad, but it's ultimately ineffective because it can't perfect us. It can't make us perfect. And again, this idea of perfection, it it ties together a whole passage from beginning to end, because we're seeing it here again in verse 19. Again, it's in the context of reaching our goal, fulfilling our function as worshipers of God. Did you know that God put Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden to worship? That was one of the primary roles of these image bearers in the garden was to worship God in righteousness, in holiness. And so this idea of perfection is us getting back to that place. It's, it's being made complete in terms of the conditions for which we are created. Think about all these beautiful things in the book of Hebrews that it's associated with, our perfection. It's associated with our being sanctified. That means being set apart in holiness. Our being made perfectly holy and righteous. Our being redeemed. That is, bought out of our sin and washed and purified having the image of God fully restored in us as image bearers. That's what happens through the perfection we have in Jesus Christ. And all of this can only be accomplished through his priestly work on our behalf. Guys, the better hope is not a concept. The better hope is a person named Jesus. He is our better hope through whom we draw near to God. It's in Christ, as we sang earlier. He alone exchanged his perfect righteousness, his perfect record before God for our unrighteousness. And he alone paid the penalty for our sin because he didn't have sin to pay the penalty for in order to redeem us, to serve God eternally and perfectly. The priesthood of Jesus is both perfect and permanent. And folks, it's available to any and every person who will simply put their faith in him. Two weeks ago, I mentioned, uh, I mean, just like during the sermon, I mentioned this, but it happened right before the service. I was right out here talking, but I got a call that one of our friends in Fort Worth, who's one of our supporters when we came down here to church plant, had fallen and gotten an infection, turned into sepsis and went downhill. And it was a, it was a, um, uh, ultimately became terminal. And that very next day, after I told you all that, he passed away peacefully uh, and and I've been invited now to speak at his memorial service this coming Friday, so I'm going to be going up there this Friday. And they've asked me to share a memory of him uh, with the friends and family who are going to be attending. And as I was thinking about the memories, uh, I'm going to share the very first time I met him. And so I became a Christian in my 20s in 2004. And one of the first things I did is I got associated with a men's Bible study up in Fort Worth at this church, through through whose ministry I came to Christ. And I remember one of the first times I went to this men's Bible study, this guy uh, who who would later become our friend and supporter, he was sharing his testimony. And it was raw. It was raw, his testimony. And I was a little uncomfortable, to be honest with you. I was kind of squirming in my chair. But he was sharing about his imperfections. He was sharing about his sin and his sinful tendencies in a way that I had never experienced before. Because, guys, I had grown up in and around a church where, and I'm not faulting anybody but myself for this, where I had grown up thinking that Christianity was more about putting forward your best foot, spiritually speaking. It was more of a, a Christian resume than it was about living life and being honest about your imperfections and your sins and your failures. When you, quite frankly, you blow it because you're not trusting in yourself ultimately. And that's what I walked away with from his testimony because he was so transparent, because he was so honest about his failures, you know what it made me think? It made me think that he actually believed that Jesus was perfect, because there would be no other way for him to have joy and peace in this life, having failed so often and sinned and had such a deep tendency towards sin. And so as a very young Christian, he impressed that upon me, that it's okay to admit our failures. It's okay to confess our sins because we're not trusting in ourselves. We're not self-righteous. We are robed in the righteousness of Christ. I'll never forget that. I can't wait to share that this, this, uh, this Friday. Um, when we stop trying to, to impress people with our pseudo-perfection, then we can begin to point them, not just grovel in our own imperfections, but we can begin to point to the fact that we're not perfect so that they don't try and put their hope in us, Parents, this is especially true of of raising kids. I don't want my kids to put their faith in me. I want them to see that I'm not perfect, but there is one who is and who, in fact, can make them perfect through his priestly ministry, Jesus Christ. What that means for our lives and our eternity. Perfection is only realized in Christ. So if we've trusted in him, kids, hear this if we've trusted in Jesus that He died for our sins and rose again, that He ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of God the Father as our great high priest who has sacrificed for our sins, if we believe that, that we've been wrapped in what Isaiah called the robe of His righteousness, in other words, that our faith unites us with Christ in such a way that we now share in His perfection. Isn't that a beautiful thought? He shares his perfection with us. And positionally, in terms of our relationship with God, we are in God's presence, even now in Christ, and God is in us through the indwelling Holy Spirit. He's taken up residence in us as believers. Isn't that beautiful? We become his temple. And these statements that I've just made are true of every single believer, every single person that's trusted in Jesus Christ. All those things I said are true of you. But even in Christ, We can feel the weight of our imperfection, can't we? We can feel anything but perfect some days when we're losing our temper, when we're showing our anger, when we're falling into patterns, old patterns of sin. We're constantly tempted to let those feelings of insufficiency, I'm not enough, that less than mentality that I hear us talk about amongst ourselves, the insufficiency, the inadequacy, the, the ultimate impotence, those feelings can rob us of the joy and the peace of having already been made perfect in Christ. That is true of us, regardless of how you feel. And we got to hold on to that, folks. And this is why the Holy Spirit reminds us of our perfection in Christ. And He does this as we study the truth of God's Word together, And and he does this as we listen to the encouragement of one another, of God's people in our lives. As we together fixate on the perfection of Christ and, and our perfection in Christ, our lives will be transformed as we are progressively perfected to more and more resemble the spiritual perfection that we already have through Christ Jesus our Lord. Let me just repeat that. Because if you try and progressively perfect yourself to become perfect, you've got it backwards. In Christ, by God's grace, we've been made perfect in Christ such that God's love and grace and kindness towards us will lead to a life of growing holiness. A life where we are being more and more perfected in practical ways to match who we are in Christ, our identity. I want to close uh, with a a passage that I love. I love it so much I put it on the wayside weekly every single week for the past couple months, if you've noticed. But later on in Hebrews, in chapter 12, the author implores us, and he says this, and I'm going to leave you with this. He says, Run with endurance the race that is set before us, fixing our eyes on Jesus. And then here's what he calls him. The author and perfecter of our faith. He alone is our better hope, not just in this life, but throughout eternity as we stand in the perfection of our great high priest in the presence of our heavenly father forever and ever and ever. Um, Next week, we're going to finish out chapter seven and we're going to reach a kind of a crescendo in the comparison between these priesthoods, the Levitical priesthood and the priesthood of Jesus. We're going to look at that more next week. Let's pray. Please bow your heads with me.